All right. We're going to continue forward in our, actually backward, in our uh, series that we've been uh, going through, reading Romans backwards, where we've been looking at this uh, amazing letter to the Rome, Roman church that Paul wrote. And uh, we started at the end, started at chapter 16, because I want to lay the, lay the foundation for um, the meaning of the letter by looking at who Paul was writing to. And he, and he gives us a peep into that at the end. He, you know, he talks to the people that he's writing to and gives us a glimpse of, of what that church looks like. And we, we, we've talked a little bit before, maybe a couple weeks ago, we were, we were referencing uh, this idea of he writes to the weak and to the strong. And that how he defines weak and strong spiritually different than we might define weak and strong spiritually. What, what, what he calls weak are predominantly the Jewish uh, Christians in that church that are still holding on to the old legal structure of Jewish law, the old Sabbath keeping, the old uh, circumcision laws, the food laws, all of that kind of stuff. Those that are like, yes, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but we can't abandon the old ways either because they're just as important. And if you're going to be a Christian, you have to hold Jesus high and you have to hold Jewish tradition high as well. And, and, and Paul was like, no, no, that's weakness because Christ has set you free from all that and you're choosing to live in that weakness rather than to live in his strength and in his freedom and that sort of thing. And he calls out the, uh, the non-Jewish uh, congregation members, those that are Roman citizenry, citizenry mostly, and, uh, and he calls them out as the strong because they're the ones that they don't have the foundation of all that old structure. They're just embracing Christ for the sake of embracing Christ. And they have that freedom of, of really accepting him in faith. Uh, they don't, have to, don't feel like they have to add to the gospel with law and tradition. They're just living free in Christ. And so that's how he defines weak and strong. But in this church, it was not just a matter of being spiritually weak and spiritually strong, that he also is referring to uh, socially weak and strong as well. So we talked a few weeks ago as well about how what had happened historically in this church was that when the church in Rome was started, as was the case with most of the churches that were started in that part of the world, they would start in the synagogue, in the Jewish synagogues, because that's where they had the background. They knew the background of the, you know, that there would be a Messiah and all this kind of stuff. They had all that, that foundation, all that background that God was going to send a Messiah. So they would start there, and then they would branch out into the community from the synagogue and reach people that were more Roman in nature, the Gentiles. And so that's what happened in Rome. They start, so at, in the beginning of the church in Rome, it was a very predominantly Jewish church, but then Caesar got really ticked off at the Jews in Rome, and he kicked them all out of Rome, kicked them out of the city. And so as the Jews left that, that city and left a church of exclusively Roman citizens, that began to grow and it began to grow. And then a new Caesar comes along and the, the Jews were allowed back in, so they, they start filtering back into the church in Rome. And now the, the power structure has shifted in, that, in the city and in the church. In the church, now it's predominantly Roman citizens with a handful of these Jews that have started to filter back into the church, moving back to for, for what many of them consider to be home, and, and they're getting all set up. But now there's this tension. There's not only this spiritually weak and spiritually strong tension that's happening in this congregation, there's this um, socially weak and strong tension. So you have uh, the, the, the beginnings of some kind of anti-Semitism that's kind of starting in that city. A lot of the, the citizens were, were very kind of, they looked down their noses at the, 
at the uh, Jews of that city. In fact, Jamie and I spent time in Rome uh, a summer or two ago, and, and when we were there, uh, you can still walk through the old, Roman, or the old Jewish ghettos uh, that are there in Rome. They have their synagogues and their, their shops and everything. It's really a fascinating neighborhood. But that's, that all still existed, and there was always this kind of pocket of, of uh, Jewish people in, in the city. But, then there, but now there's this tension in the congregation. Both the Jews are looking down on the Romans because they're not keeping up, keeping up with the old traditions. The Romans are looking down on the Jews because it's like, ah, you people are back again, you know, that sort of thing. And it's just this, there's this weird tension, right? And so Paul, as he's writing this letter that we tend to look at as just a theological document written to us, Paul, we have to be reminded that this was a letter that Paul wrote to a church that was very unique in a very unique situation in a very unique city, and we're going to kind of pull that out. So today we're going to be in Romans 9 through 11, Romans 9, 10, and 11, if you want to turn over there. Uh, it's three chapters. We're not going to read every verse. We're, I'm just going to kind of pull out the highlights, but I encourage you to go back and read it on your own because there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there. But it is a com- this is probably the most complex part of the entire letter. And uh, there's just a lot going on there and a lot that Paul's trying to say. And what he's mainly trying to do in these three chapters is remind these two groups of people. I'm going to be referring back and forth today. So let's just assume that this side of the room are the, are the weak the Jews, okay? And th- this side of the room are the strong. We'll let you guys be the, the more Roman citizens, that sort of thing. So I'll, I'll go back and forth. But you're both going to get beat up on, so be patient. So, so in 9, 10, and 11, 9, 10, 11 uh, what he's really trying to establish with all this tension and all this infighting happening is he's trying to remind them who is actually a part of the family of God. Who is a part of the family of God? This is really critical for him to kind of lay the foundation of, of this theology that he, that he teaches in this book because it's a critical question that they're still very confused about. And a lot of unhealthy habits are developing because of that confusion. But this is the thing about God and his family is the way God has worked you know, initially through, through Abraham and Abraham's family and that rolls into something that becomes the nation of Israel, that, you know, all this kind of, the way God has worked through his chosen people, through his family, throughout history is oftentimes very um, unexpected. That one of the things that we're doing in our small groups right now, if you're in a small group, is that we're, you know this year we're working through the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, the story of redemption, how God is rescuing this world and what that looks like. And in that redemption story, it is not a straight line. It takes some weird curves. Where, where, where God works or prefers one group of people over another at one point and then shifts and, and, and God rescues one group of people from an unexpected source. And God, God is, just, is, just, is just constantly shifting in really unexpected direction. He's choosing kings uh, from people who don't appear to be kingly. He's, doing, you know, he's, he's using the meek and the weak instead of the strong in his plan. He, he, where if we were to guess the direction he was going... When you read through the scripture, you would guess wrong almost every single time. God goes in very unexpected directions. That's kind of the way family works, too. Let me use my family for, as an example. I was looking at some pictures this week. Put up that first picture. So this is how my family started. This is me and Jamie. We eloped in uh, January of 1995, had our big family uh, wedding in March of that same year. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you, those first couple of years, it was perfect. My family was perfect. 
It was amazing. I loved so much. We, had, we lived in this cute little tiny, tiny house in Arlington, Virginia, and I loved that couple of years so much. We were, we, we were still, you know, we're in our early 20s. I, I, I can remember, maybe, maybe some, if some of you are still in this phase, if you are, uh, I want to punch you in the throat. But <laughs> back then, when, we, when this was my perfect little family, uh, it could be 11 o'clock at night, and we'd look at each other and go, I feel like seeing a movie. You feel like seeing a movie? Yeah, let's go see a movie. And we just walk out the door. You guys remember those days? Awesome. So awesome. That is so, we didn't have to pack a bag. We didn't have to tell 12 people to go use the bathroom first. We did, like, like all of that, like it was just amazing. I loved it so much. And it was, it was my family, I couldn't imagine it being more perfect. And we'll fast forward a couple of years, and, and we added uh, Molly and Isaiah. Look at that. Look at, I, I showed that picture to Jamie last night. I was like, look how young we were. And she goes, look how much energy we had. And, <laughs> Like, now we take family pictures, and it looks like the pictures of the pioneers. I'm just standing there like this. Just trying. You know, that, that's like, how, look at all that energy. Like, it's just popping out of the picture. And, but but that, that was our, so, you know, we added Molly, and we added that. Now, when, when we added Molly, it had been literally generations, multiple generations, since there had been a, a natural-born Myers girl. Molly was the first in generations. And so, so Molly comes on the scene, and then next we got our boy, we got Isaiah. It's like the perfect family. Like, we got it. We're done. We're set. Boy, girl, you know, mom, dad. It's, it's beautiful, man. Those days were so awesome and happy, and I remember just bragging on them all the time. They were, you know, just thinking they were both geniuses and, and, uh, and uh, it's all that, because it's just awesome. I love that. And then my wife, you know, several years later decides... I think I want another one. And so then we add Isla. And, and Isla came out of the womb just like that. She was ready to go, just full of energy. And I always tell people that when Isla came on the scene, I was a little hesitant about adding another one to our perfect little family. And, and, but when Isla came out of the womb, she brought joy to our family like I didn't even know it was possible. You know, she just came out joyful. And, and it, it was just awesome. And, and, and I, I did, then I didn't, and we had built-in babysitters too, and it was a good situation. And I didn't feel like it could get any more perfect. And then Jamie decided Isla needed a playmate, and so we added Meadow, uh, who can't focus during a family picture. And, and, uh, and so, like, and, and, but again, uh, you know, what I thought was perfection, like, God just grew what my definition of perfection was uh, when we added Meadow, and it was, it was absolutely amazing. And we, I was good. Four, like, we had a Mormon amount of kids. Like, we had like four kids. It was all good. And then, and then we added this last year through adoption, uh, Jordan, and uh, couldn't be happier to have her joining the Myers clan and even perfecting our family situation even more. Um, it's, and, 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 and please God, no more perfection, right? <laughs> and, and it's really, like, really, I, 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 but, but, my, but God's story of the Myers family took some twists and turns that I wasn't expecting, but as is the case always, God's plans are always better than our plans. God, I thought I, thought I knew what perfection was when it was just Jamie and I, and it was pretty dang good. And now... I can't imagine my family any other way. I mean, a couple of years ago when God really impressed on our hearts to bring Jordan into our family and 
And it wasn't, it wasn't a situation of God saying, um, you know, this kid needs help. I need you to step up and help. No, I literally felt God, it, it was like he would just cracked open my heart and made room, not for a child, for a daughter. You guys understand the distinction? Like for a daughter. And, um, and, and that's the way God works. He works in these really weird, unexpected ways. But it's always so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. And this is what Paul is going to do for us today. He's going he's to tell a really long and winding road story of how God is shaping his family in ways that are unexpected, but it's but so much beautiful than maybe what his listeners were, had assumed God's story would look like, right? So he starts off, we're going to start with chapter 9, verse 1. <clears throat> and I want you to hear, again, when we read Scripture, we tend to read it very plain and cold, and I want you to hear the emotion that Paul is, is writing with today. <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He is like, it breaks my heart that there are so many of my own people, the Jewish people, that have rejected their Messiah. It breaks my heart. Even to the point Paul says, sometimes I wish I could just go to hell in place of them right? In place of, like, I could swap places with them if it would mean saving all of them. Like, that's how, that's how heartbroken he is. And he says, he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. He's like, this is their story, They've known about this. They've known that God has, has, been, has been using them as his chosen people, as the vehicle to rescue the world, to save the world, to set all things right, and to establish his kingdom, to send his Messiah. They've known this. They've been looking for it. They've kept detailed ancestry records looking for who it might be and not making sure they didn't miss any of the signs. They, they, it, it, this is their story, and they missed it. It's like, I'm so heartbroken. They, they should be enjoying this freedom. They should be enjoying this, 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 this new role in this new kingdom that God is, is launching. They should be celebrating and worshiping with me this Messiah that God has sent. And, and they missed it. They rejected him. And then he says this. It says, but it's not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. I want you to remember that statement because we're going to come back to it later. Not all who descended from Israel are Israel. And this is what he's saying. He's like, God, in his infinite wisdom, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, in his infinite wisdom, in his divine plan for humankind, God has done something that, that you as those that we might call the weak in the church, those that, that are still holding on to those old ways, you didn't see it coming. You weren't expecting you're still having trouble grasping it now, and what God has done is that he has redefined who his family is, 
And he's done that around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God's family, God's chosen people are no longer just those people who live in this obscure little pocket of the world that we call Israel or Judea or whatever they called it back then. It's not just those people who are, have a bloodline that, has, that makes them descendants of Abraham. That's not who God, that God has opened up the idea of who his family is, who his chosen people is, who his elect is by making it all of us, the entire world, that God's family is now everyone. Everyone has the same ability to come to him in faith, not just one group of people, everyone. Not everyone who, not all who are descended from Israel. Israel is Jacob, the old, the old uh, patriarch. Not everyone who is descended from Israel is actually Israel. Israel has a different meaning now, a different, has a spiritual definition. In God's mind, Israel is something different. And then he goes on to this, verse 30 of that same chapter, chapter 9. He says, what, shall, what then shall we say? <coughs> the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Jesus is the stumbling stone. Like they couldn't get that. They couldn't, he's like, he, what's, what's happened? is that all these Gentiles who've been walking in disobedience and not acknowledging God you know, for eons, he's like, now, they weren't pursuing righteousness the way you guys were pursuing. I mean, you, you, you Jews, you were trying so hard. You were trying to keep God's laws. You were trying to be the people that he called you to be. You were trying to look for all the signs. You were trying to pursue the righteousness of God, and you missed it, but they got a hold of it because they realized it's not about any of that. It's all about Jesus, and they've just embraced Jesus. They haven't added anything to him. They've just embraced him. They've obtained the goal, but you haven't. Why? Because you were pursuing it as if it was all about your works, like you're trying to earn it. And man, this is the trap of, of Christianity sometimes. So many times we get into this weird experience with, with our faith where we feel like, even though we know the verses, we can, we can quote them, we can't get rid of this deep-seated feeling that we have to work and earn our way towards our salvation. And we just work and we just work and we just work. And I'm not saying we shouldn't try to be good people. The Bible is pretty clear that we should try to be good, decent, moral people who, who are a good example for those to come and follow Christ. We should try to do that, but that is not how we earn our salvation. And some of you, even in this room, I would guess, maybe your experience of coming to Christ was some sort of if-then agreement with God. God, if, if you'll get me out of this, then I'll start living this way. I'll start working and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And then what happens is, is that when you start failing and you can't keep up your end of the agreement with God, then you feel like you've got to walk away. Why? Because you created your own plan of salvation instead of just accepting the free gift of God, his grace and his love and his salvation that's not earned or merited by you, but instead it's just given you couldn't believe that. You felt like you had to earn it and work towards it. And this is what Paul is saying to these people. You went about it the wrong way, and that's why you stumbled over that stumbling stone. You stumbled over Jesus. You couldn't believe you were looking for a king. You were looking for a military leader. You were looking for a conqueror. And God sent you a homeless servant. A homeless servant. 
who died a criminal's death, and you, can't, you couldn't imagine lifting him up high. And so you rejected him, and you missed it. Look what he says next in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. It all points to Christ. All of that law, all of the covenants, all of, the, all of that history, all of that tradition, it all points to Jesus Christ, and Jesus perfects it, and he's the culmination of all of that. And in doing so, he makes all of the rest of it obsolete. Obsolete. And now it's Christ alone. How many times throughout human history must Christian preachers say the words, Christ alone, before the congregation actually believes those words, Christ alone. Christ alone. That's it. And, then, and, and to drive it home, skip down to verse 8, he says this, but what, is, what does Moses say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's all it takes now is faith. Here Paul is he's addressing, he's addressing the Jews of that congregation in this whole first part of the, 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 this, these three chapters. He's, like, he's trying to get this home. He's trying to drive it into them. It's not what you think it is. It's changed. It's changed. It's not what you think it is. The strongest time is coming in just a second. Here it is right now. Chapter 11, starting with verse 11. <coughs> he says, again, I ask, did they stumble? Did they stumble so, so, as to fall, so far as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? He's like, he's like, those of you who think you're the new chosen people, that they wasted their opportunity, that they rejected the Messiah, and you want to get these anti-Semitic ideas and, and start you know, trying to persecute them and all that kind of stuff. He said, before you go too far, remember that, that, that it's only because they rejected it that this even became available to you. You guys, under, what he's trying to say here is that, let's say that, uh, redemption path took a straight line, that the Messiah came and the Jewish people just immediately accepted him and started worshiping Jesus, right? What do you think would have happened if that would have happened? What would have happened is what had happened for all of Israel's history. They just would have kept it all to themselves. They just would have kept it all to themselves. And it's only because there was only a small remnant of them that accepted it and the vast majority rejected it that it then went out into the world and became open to the rest of the world. And Paul's like, it's because of their disobedience that the word even came to you. So don't get too big of a head. And then he goes on, <coughs> verse 22. I love this. He says, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. 
In other words, don't start treating them all, all horribly. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. He's using some cultivation terminology. You guys know with all the orchards around here, you see the, 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 the young trees on the old stumps that they've grafted in around here, you know, that sort of thing. And so he's using that terminology. And he said, after all, if you were cut off of an, if you were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, you were grafted into the cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree, right? It's like if it was easy for you to come to Christ, how much more easy, easier is it going to be for them to really be grafted into because the, the, the root system is all God. It's, and he talks more about that in verses I'm not going to read today, but the root system is all God. Who gets grafted in? That's how God works out his beautiful redemption plan for the world. But don't start despising them because they have, they're, they're taking a long way around and you guys are, are pure faith and you don't, don't despise them because they're, they're rejecting the old traditions. He's like, we're all one family grafted into that same trunk, right? Look at this, verse 25. Okay. It's like, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in and in this way, all Israel will be saved, right? So this is what he's saying. And this is, where, this is one of the most, I think, misunderstood uh, passages in Scripture. It has shaped weird uh, theology and doctrine. It has shaped weird politics in the last, you know, in the 20th and 21st centuries especially. Uh, it, is, it is a very odd thing that is, that is widely misunderstood because I don't think it's being read in the full context of what we're reading today. Not just this one verse, but all, going all the way back to 9. Where, where I said, remember that verse, that all of Israel is not, Israel is more than just Israel, you know, that sort of thing that we talked about earlier. He says, in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, what a lot of people have taken this to mean is that something with the end times is going to happen where the entire nation of Israel is going to accept Jesus. And that God is just going to save all of them. All of Israel will be saved in that way. The problem with that, honestly, is the rest of Scripture. Because it seems to go in the face of the idea of that there is there no, you know, there's not any more Jew or Greek, and that God is not a, a respecter of nations anymore, but he has opened up his salvation plan to all. It's a weird kind of thing for him to preach that openness and that acceptance and then go, oh, except for this one group, we're gonna save every single one of them. Right? It's always still been about faith. And when Paul here is saying that. In this way, all Israel will be saved. I don't think he's talking about the Israel over here versus the Gentiles over here. I think he's talking about all Israel. This, God wove this weird twisting plan throughout human history and chose to rescue some and prefer others and do all this kind of weird thing and, and, and use the disobedience of one group to, to help rescue the other group. He did all of this so that all of what he now calls true Israel, those who is true Israel, all of us. Everybody who calls out the name of Jesus Christ, we are true Israel. This is the way that all will be saved. All will be saved. As long as they come to faith, everybody has the same opportunity. Not one nation doesn't have a different opportunity than the other. We all have the same opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ in faith, and therefore we all will have the opportunity to be saved. He's like, I know it took a weird a weird path to get to God's plan of having all people saved, 
But this all had to happen. He's like, all this had to happen in order for that to happen. Skip down to verse 30. He says, just as you, you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that, they, so that he may have mercy on them all. I love that. God's bound everyone over to disobedience so that he can show his mercy. I love that God is the type of God that when I'm disobedient to him, he doesn't just kick me to the curb. He looks, as, looks at it as an opportunity to just pour heaps of mercy out on me. Beautiful, beautiful. And the big point I want to make from this today is this, is that through Jesus, God remade his family to include you. Through Jesus, God totally reshaped, remade his family to include you. And even though it started with one family that turned into one nation, and that was God's you know, so-called chosen people, even though it started that way, that we have all been adopted into that family, and we all get the same inheritance, and we all get to experience the same kingdom, and we all get to experience the same reward, God totally reshaped and remade his family to include you. Now, Jamie and I, we just adopted one uh, this year or last year, and I mean, we could be total jerks and just go, no, 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 o only the kids that were naturally born to us will receive the inheritance. But that's not, that's not the way you do family. That's not the way you do family. When we invited Jordan into our family, that came with the full rights and the full benefits of being a part of our family. And she'll get just as much of nothing as the others get. <laughs> and she'll, she'll inherit all the, this, the equal amount of debt that the others inherit, right? <laughs> that is, that's how you do family. And that's the way God does family too. He doesn't prefer one over the other. No, no, no. He's opened up. He's adopted into his kingdom, into his family, everyone. And now it becomes up to everyone whether or not they will embrace that calling into his family or not. That's how that works. Now, the very next verse is Paul kind of takes a, another little turn here. And rather than kind of continuing to teach on this, he, he, he quotes what most people consider to be a song. This was probably like an early hymn that the early churches used to sing together. And he, he just throws this song in there because they, they know it, they're familiar with it, and it's driving home the point that he's trying to make here. And he says this, like, like in the middle of their confusion of like, why would God work it in this way? Why isn't it just a straight line? Why does it take so many weird turns and to get to the destination what God wanted to get it to? And Paul quotes this song that they would sing, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He's like, he's like I know you guys, I know it doesn't make sense to you. I know that if you, if, if, if you would have designed this whole salvation plan, you would have done it differently. You would have made it go in a straight line that made sense. He's like, but remember, we're, we're talking about a God who has wisdom and knowledge beyond what we can comprehend. 
His judgments, you can't even begin to try to figure. They're so pure, they're beyond your flawed mind. His paths, don't try to follow his path. You're just going to get lost. It's like, who are you to even try to figure out the mind of God? Are you going to step into the place of God's counselor? My God, I see what you did there. But let me just tell you what you should have done. Right? Like, who, who, who are you to do that? What have you given to God that he owes you something? And he's like, no, no, no. From him, through him, for him are all things. None of this is about you. It's all about him. He alone deserves our praise. And so this is what I want to leave you with, with, with today. As a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the best things you can do is learn how to love the mystery. Learn to love the mystery. I love that we, have, that we serve a mysterious God. We can't figure him out all the time. We can't always tell. Like, like I, I can point to so many moments in my life where I thought I knew what was getting ready to happen with my life, and God, God threw me a curveball. And I'm like, what in the world? And this is what I know is that as much as I thought I would have liked to go down the path that was my plan, God's plans have always, always, always been better than my plans. It does not fail. God's plans are always better than my plans. I can look back over my life and think of all the plans that were my plans and look now at how my life has turned out and go, thank God God didn't give me what I asked for. Thank God he didn't give me what I asked for. Thank God he intercepted and gave me his plan. Learn to love the mystery. Learn to rejoice in the mystery. Learn to look at the failure and go, ooh, here's an opportunity for God's mercy. Learn to look at the the unexpected tragedy and go, God's getting ready to show up and do something powerful. Like, learn to love the mystery. I wish we could figure God out. I wish we could. I wish I could stand up here as some sort of expert and go, this is how God does things, right? I don't know how God does things. You didn't hire that smart of a pastor. Like, I don't know. I just know he's good. I just know he's good. And he hasn't failed me yet. He hasn't. There's been some left turns. There's been some things that I wasn't necessarily happy with. There's been some circumstances that I wouldn't have chosen for myself. But God is good all the time. He is. And we need to learn to embrace that mystery. Some people see the mystery and they go, that's it, I'm out. If I can't understand it, I'm not following it, right? But think about that for just a second. Like, would you really want to follow a God that you completely understood? Like, what kind of God could you completely understand? Like, it's not a very big God if I can understand him. So learn to embrace the mystery. Learn to love it. God's got a plan. And his plans are oftentimes different than our plans. His ways are higher than our ways, but he is good. Amen? He is good. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you so much for your word to us today. Even though it's a, at times a little bit tricky, a little bit hard to follow, God, um, Bottom line is, I'm so thankful that you remade your family for me and for everybody else that's in here today. Um, Thank you for adopting us in fully 
and to your family. God, help us to help others around us in our community, at work, in our homes, realize that they too have been adopted in and help them come to a place where they can step up in faith and embrace you. God, for those of us that maybe are looking at our lives right now and we're at best confused and at worst maybe angry, bitter about the direction our lives have taken, God, give us the faith that it takes to embrace the mystery of the path that you have us on and trust that you do indeed work all things together for our good. We'll give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.